She was born in Somalia. She was raised in Kenya. And as she was coming of age, she had strong influence from what is now known as the Muslim Brotherhood. And she was strongly inclined to their ways. And then 9-11 happened. And she sort of looked upon her upbringing and of her affiliation with the Muslim Brotherhood at that time and was aghast at what she heard was justification for the terror that was inflicted upon America at that time. And she was so jarred that she began to rethink her whole belief, not just in Islam, but in God in general. And she came across the writings of an early 20th century philosopher named Bertrand Russell, who you may have read the book or the essay in which he said, the name of that book was, Why I Am Not a Christian. And for the first time in her life, she heard words that were so resonant and of such great relief Great relief to hear from someone so articulate that it was entirely irrational to believe in anything transcendent. And at that moment, she made a clean break, not just with her background in the Muslim Brotherhood, but with God entirely. She goes on to found a women's organization, women's rights organization throughout the world. She moves to the Netherlands and is elected to the parliament of the Netherlands. A fatwa was issued against her. A fatwa is the call for an assassination because she had written a book called Heretic and spoke of her unyielding, unsparing critique, not only of, any tradition, of, of that tradition, but of any. Her name is Ayan Hirsi Ali. And last month, she wrote an essay that startled a lot of people from every persuasion. And the name of her article in Unheard was this, Why I Am Now a Christian. I mentioned it a couple weeks ago. She provoked outcry from atheists and Christians galore. You always want to listen to voices like that that make everybody mad. Because <laughs> there might be something there. You know, as they say, if you're, if you're getting flack, you're over the target. And in that article, she makes it very clear why now she has repudiated that former belief in atheism for Jesus. And what made the most outcry is that she grounded this new belief in Christianity on the basis of what she thinks are the political, ideological, and geopolitical ramifications of that belief. Now, I am not here today to espouse or deny where she lands on things like that. That's way above me. And part of the critique that she got was, it doesn't sound like you really believe in Jesus, you just believe in the practical ramifications of that belief. Yeah, which was about as a disingenuous and uncharitable reading of what she said as you could imagine. She's been changed. Her mind has been changed. And this Christmas, if you will, will be Ion's first Christmas identifying as a believer in Jesus. And today, as we begin a series in Advent, I think there are some pretty remarkable parallels between her story, Ion's first Christmas, and the first Christmas. And they both center on this idea of glory, which is what we're doing for the entirety of Advent. We want to talk about glory until we're tired of it. And the thing about glory is you're never tired of it. It's the nature of glory. But I think Ion's first Christmas 
and the first Christmas have some striking parallels between them that we want to consider glory under three heads. The experience of glory based upon the essence of glory, which leads to certain effects on you on the basis of that experience of its essence. The experience of glory based upon the essence of glory from which follows certain effects on you and all of glory. We're going to start where it all started, in Luke chapter 2, and we're going to get a little help from an old friend in part. Would you stand and we'll consider that together. And there were in the same country shepherds, abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them. And the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God, and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can sit. The first thing I want to talk about is the experience of glory. And next week, uh, we will get into maybe a clearer, like more... uh, defined a definition of glory this week we're going to have you come up with your own definition based upon the experience of it and before i i get into the experience that you hear manifested there in the text and the experience of ayan hersi ali there's more over her we just got started with her i want to say two prefacing things that i notice here in the early part of the passage one i think is more explicit that you can ground in what you find there the other is more of a metaphor based upon you meditate on this long enough, you go, I think there's something to that. Here, let, me, let me rattle it like this. Here's the question. Who has access to the experience of glory? Short answer, anyone. Anyone may have the experience of glory. Shepherds. <laughs> Why? Bunch of dudes out in the field who smell like sheep. It's available to them. Who else? Uh, To some woman who is the former member of parliament in the Netherlands who actually had no interest in God whatsoever. She had an experience of glory. In glory being exposed to those who had no name, no reputation, no pedigree, who walk off stage, if you will, as quickly as they came on, 
If glory can come to them, and if glory can come to somebody who essentially writes a book decrying any belief in any God, if glory can be experienced by her and by them, then friends, glory can come to anybody. It is not about whether you got a PhD. It is not about whether you're a member of the elite. It is not a member, it does not depend on whether you've been to seminary. The availability of the experience of glory may come to anyone. And we see that in the story of glory coming to the shepherds. And we see that in the story of a Somalian woman who now is startled and made everybody angry. What's the other implication here that I might say before we talk about the real experience? It's this. How was glory experienced in Luke chapter 2 against a backdrop of night? Glory shone round about them there against a night sky. And I think you can take that kind of metaphorically here that often the experiences of glory come against a backdrop of darkness. Whether your own inner darkness, your own inner turmoil, or a set of circumstances that leave you absolutely bewildered, absolutely disillusioned and disoriented, Glory can appear against a backdrop of darkness. There, glory and brilliance and luminosity and all of that can appear in your darkness, in the backdrop of your pain. It can. It does. There are stories in here of that already. So let's talk about the experience. Let's cut to the chase. What is this experience? It's not just one thing. It develops. And you see it developing here. And how does it begin? The first experience of someone encountering the glory of God is this, terror. <laughs> Linus, love the KJV at some times, and they were sore afraid. Ow, ow, I'm so, it hurts, ow. I'm so afraid it hurts. They were, that's not what it means, right. They were sore afraid. My, my friends from the seminary that translated this passage, they, they come up with this and they say, what their experience is that they were utterly terrified. The shepherds were not there in the middle, you know, all quiet on the pastoral front, stroking their beards going, my, unprecedented. <laughs> <laughs> they had no category for what they were experiencing, and they weren't even confident they weren't going to get killed. They were terrified. That's what they felt. In the garden, in Genesis 3, after what we'll call the fruit affair, the fruit-eating affair. Everybody wonders what, like they were naked and unashamed, and then they were naked and they were ashamed. Like, what's up with that? When they decided they knew better and wanted to be like gods, having been told, that guy's just crimping your style, man. You got a better life ahead of you if you'll just move on and take matters into your own hands. And so they did. And then it says they were naked and they were ashamed. And what does that mean? They finally, for the first time, knew that they were vulnerable. And when it says the Lord was walking in the cool of the day, what did they want to do? They wanted to hide. They wanted to find refuge in something else other than what they formerly knew. That's fear. Why did we read Exodus 33? What does Moses want? Please, 
for the love of chips and salsa, sir. Show me your glory. And the Lord says, you know what? I'll show you my goodness. But if you see me in my fullness, it'll kill you. And I, I know I keep using this illustration. I, I like it. So Elon launches another rocket last month, right? And, and there it is. And, you know, it was a great liftoff. And then it, and then it actually fizzled out. So that's sort of a metaphor. Um, but there it was. And from that distance, glorious. Something will well up in you that you don't even have words for. You'll just see that and go, that's amazing. If you're within 50 yards of the launch, you will be incinerated. You will properly be afraid because you know what it'll do to be that close. I don't know. It's the closest thing I can reach for when it comes to understanding what is God trying to say to Moses there. And we'll talk about that on New Year's Eve more. This fear. That's fear. And it begins there. It's startling, it's jarring, it's disorienting, all of it. So, all right, that's their experience. How am I going to build a bridge to Ayan's first Christmas? I'll tell you what was jarring to her. No, it was not, uh, I don't know, maybe it was a fearful moment. She has a colleague named Mary Harrington that says, I'll bet you she had a road to Damascus experience and she doesn't want to talk about it yet. Could be. She's actually going to write a book about it. I wonder if it'll sell. (laughs) Ion, at some point, came to terms with this thing she could no longer hand wave away and no longer hide from, and it was this. The assumptions she had about what was good and beautiful and true, the values that she had embraced that she knew were unassailable, at some point she realized and had to reckon with the idea that those virtues and those assumptions and those things that literally built a society were not inevitable historical developments. They are an inheritance They are an inheritance from a Jew named Jesus who knew his Jewish law and had come to shape the West in ways that at some point, at some point she had to realize, I can't just continue to dismiss those things that I now love and embrace and I want to prevail in society as just sort of the random decisions of history and human choice. She read Tom Holland's Dominion, not Spider-Man, the other one, the Brit. They're both Brits. He writes a book called Dominion, and he says, ask yourself, where did the ideas of dignity, of equality, of the rule of law, of the place of forgiveness, that didn't just happen. It's an inheritance. And at some point, Ion had to go, yeah, that's right. I can't hide from that. I can't hide from the story's claim on this society and on me too. And that was for her jarring. That's the closest thing I can imagine to her going, hold up. Huh. I actually might be accountable and answerable to these things that I have so enjoyed and appreciated and valued. That's fear. That's a good fear. And that's what she faced But like I said, the experience of God's glory is not one thing. It begins with fear. Where does it go? Where does it develop? Will you hear it? Finally, the shepherds, thinking they're about to, we're going to die. The angels offer a little word of clarification. Hey, 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 fear not. Oh, phew. Fear not, for behold, 
I bring you glad tidings of great joy. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. I bring you glad tidings of great joy. Joy is probably the most misunderstood word in, in contemporary language. What is joy? We all think joy is woohoo! Joy. Woohoo! Ha ha ha! Joy! No. What is joy? Joy is even when sadness is around. Joy is the capacity that through your tears, through your bewilderment, you still believe that you are held. You are held even when everything else that was holding you up falls away. That's joy. It is not a put on a happy face all the time. It is a I am held. It's not asking you to be numb. It's not about molding you into a stoic. It's about having something subterranean and undercurrent that you know you're held and who wouldn't want that? It is a place of relief, even when everything else brings you to tears. That's where it starts for the shepherds. And I think that's where it goes for I and Hersi Ali also, obviously. Why joy? Why would the fear become joy? Well, that's where we've got to talk about the second thing. Because the experience of glory that starts with fear and leads to joy is based upon, second of all, the essence of that glory. What is it? What is the essence of that glory? Listen to verse 11 again. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Watch the three names there. Savior, Christ, Lord. Those words show up in other places in the Old Testament but they never show up together, all three, at the same time. It's the only time that those three names are applied to one person in particular in all of Scripture. So if you're a rabbi, ears go up. What? What is that about? What is all the hubbub? Of all the places that this might be announced in a field at night, to of all people that this might occur, to a bunch of shepherds, whose names we don't know, and it doesn't matter that we know them, to announce what? Oh, there's been a birth. Oh, that never happens. Meh. Big deal. You mean Christ, Savior, Lord. That's that you're announcing, this, this being that will, you'll show up, and it's more often, more likely than not, that that thing will be burped. Savior Christ, Lord, being changed and being nursed and being difficult. Yeah, that. That's the essence of it. In the beginning was the Word, and Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld his glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Hebrews chapter 1, in, in, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And in Colossians 1, 
He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The essence of God's glory is in him. It's not a feeling. It's not even a proposition. As we've said before, with borrowing from our Eastern Orthodox friends, that always reminds us of this. Truth came in the form of a person. Not just a doctrine. He is the essence of glory. He is how it happens. Veiled in flesh that God had see, hail the incarnate deity. That's what we're saying is the essence of God's glory. You want to know it? Look at him. Track him. Consider him. Bow before him. Because not long after these shepherds do their thing, and wow, up come kings. They bow. They bring gifts to a baby. That's the announcement. And nowhere in anywhere in the Old Testament do you hear Savior, Christ, Lord ever smushed together to talk about one person. And you know what? Here's the question. Let's, let's focus just for, on one of those words, Savior. Saved from what? Are you saved, they will ask. I, I, I don't know. What do you mean? Saved from what? I mean, Mary, and here's our painting that we always bring out every year from Henry Austell with Tyner from the Annunciation. She, when she hears about God's salvation in Jesus, what does she do? She sings. We call it the Magnificat. She sings, what, of salvation from Israel's enemies. Look, Rome was an occupying force. But before Rome collapsed, Rome became captivated by who Jesus was. So in a sense, her belief was that there would be physical enemies that Israel would be saved from. And the shepherds would probably think the same things. Good Lord, we're getting taxed by the occupying force with every time we bring in sheep. But Mary also knew that what had been announced to her was not just salvation from physical enemies. It was also salvation from our own spiritual corruption. When it is announced to her that we will be forgiven of our sin by him, there was something more to this Jesus than just deliverance from physical enemies. And you, and you understand how that would become front and center because what did the disciples ask Jesus even after he is resurrected? Hey, so is this a time? You're going to set up your kingdom. And he's like, enough. All in good time, babe. First things first. We're saved from physical enemies. We're saved from spiritual enemies. We're saved from this I'd be curious, I won't ask for a show of hands, how many of you have nativity scenes at home that actually have a red dragon at the top? Uh, one of you sent me a wonderful sermon by a brother over in, in Tennessee who, who preached recently on Revelation chapter 12. Uh, good, good chapter, blow your mind, but there's a dragon that's out to vanquish the birth of a child, and that child is the one who vanquishes the red dragon. What's that all about? What are you saved from? Yeah, physical enemies, Israel would get that. Forgiveness, yeah, we would get that. But also from your greatest enemy, and that would be the one who accuses you. 
The dragon is supposed to remind you of someone. Someone who loves to hold what you've done wrong against you, kind of like the white witch likes to hold it against Edmund and feel that they have a claim on him until Aslan says, thanks, I'll take care of it. The red dragon is the one who would accuse you of everything that you know, and we all have this brilliant thing in our brains that loves to recall and remember shame like perhaps no other emotion. He has come to save you from the accusations of of the enemy. Salvation applies in a variety of ways. Salvation is from a variety of things. That's why Philip Yancey, if you know his story, he he said this, uh, from God's viewpoint in Satan's Christmas signals far more than the birth of a baby, it was an invasion, uh, the decisive advance in the great struggle for the cosmos. So, what does Ion Hersey Ali get other than the political and geopolitical ramifications of the fundamentals of Christianity? Well, I thought I would let you listen to her in her own words. Here she's being asked by Freddie Sayers, who's interviewing her last month somewhere there in England. Uh, tell me about your pilgrimage. On a, on a very personal level, I went through a period of crisis. Um, very personal crisis of fear, anxiety, depression. I went to the best therapists, Mani Kampei. I think they gave me an explanation of some of the things that I was struggling with, but I continued to have this um, big spiritual hole or need, as you call it. Um, I tried to self-medicate. I tried to sedate myself. Um, I drank enough alcohol you could use to sterilize a hospital. (laughs) It would not, uh, nothing helped. Um, I continued to read, you know, books on psychiatry and the brain, and none of that helped. All of that explained a small piece of the puzzle, but there was still something that I was missing. Um, And then I think it was one um, therapist who said to me, Early this year, I think, Ayan, you're spiritually bankrupt. And at that point, I was in a place um, where I had sort of given up hope. I was in this place of darkness, and I thought, well, what the hell? Uh, I'm going to open myself to that and see, see you know, Asta, what are you talking about? Mm. And we started talking about faith and a belief in God. And I explained to her that the God I grew up with was a horror show. Uh, He created you to punish you and frightened you. And, uh, you know, as a girl and as a woman, you're just a piece of trash. And Mm. so I said to her, I explained to her why I didn't believe in God. And more than that, why I actually hated God. And then she asked me to design my own God. And she said, if you had the power to, you know, attribute a higher power, if, if you had the power to, to make your own God, what would you do? And <laughs> as I was going on, I thought, yeah, right. Uh, that's actually a description of Jesus Christ and Christianity at its best. And so instead of inventing yet 
another new God. <laughs> um, I started diving into, um, in, into that story. Um, and so far, um, you know, my husband and I go, went about, both of us saying we're atheists. And now it's, I, I like this story. I exploit and um, the more I look at it, the more I don't want to say I'm fulfilled, but I feel I no longer have this need this, this void, I have to say, and I mm. feel like I, I'm, I'm going somewhere. To her detractors who, upon reading her essay, which is in the resource talk this week, you should read that, who felt like all she has come to embrace is a pragmatic view of God. Well, he'll be helpful to the preservation of a society uh, I hope that you would hear, and that they would hear, that something has moved her. And if you've been with us for any length of time, we would argue, that would be the Holy Spirit. To awaken her to that sense of inner impoverishment, that when she has considered Jesus, has come to change her. And it has changed her, uh, in spite of the fact that to the great chagrin and bewilderment and ridicule of many of her friends, she, she now sees Jesus as more than just some sort of religious figure. She would believe that there is glory and that glory to God in the highest, peace on earth, including for her, goodwill to those with whom God is pleased. This is the essence. This is what she would characterize as what she's been saved from, which has a great deal of overlap and yet distinctiveness. And it's the essence of glory. And what you hear hinted at, even in this interview, in public, gets us to where I want to land this plane in terms of what are the effects of glory. We've talked about the experience of it. That it there, fear, which fear doesn't totally, dis, you, know, you don't like, I had my fear phase and now I'm in my joy phase. No, fear is a reverential awe and a real concern for not wanting to offend any more than you would want to offend a, a, a friend or a spouse or a parent. You, you fear that. And that's not inappropriate. It's part of love. What are the effects of having an experience of the essence of his glory that is found in Jesus in whom salvation is found? Pondering, pointing, praising. Let's start with Mary. What happens? She's there. She's heard a lot already. Now she hears an earful from a bunch of shepherds who smell, probably. And it says there, towards the end, that she treasured these things in her heart, pondering them in her heart. She reflected upon them. She considered them. She gave her fullest attention to them. And we go, yeah, yeah, good, sure. And you don't know how that notion of treasuring and pondering is such at odds with you and with me right now. Forty years ago, Neil Postman writes a book, Amusing Ourselves to Death. Before there was widespread use of computers, way before there was an internet, and definitely way before there were smartphones. 
And one of his chapters, it's entitled, Now This, right? Which you of a certain age, when you watch the nightly news, they would tell a story, terrorism in the Middle East, and, and then, now this, and then we move on to kittens, right? There is this, you and I have been cultivated to take stuff in and then immediately move on to the next thing and not really grapple with what we just heard. Now this, except now it's to the nth degree. Scroll, 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 scroll. Oh, look, terrorism. Oh, look, um, decapitation. Oh, oh, look, uh, corruption in Congress. When does that happen? Oh, look, kittens. There's no pondering anything. There's no giving your fullest attention to anything. And I'm not preaching at you. I'm talking to myself. Fred Rogers, a long time ago, said this. You, like, not surprising, right? I've, I've charted it out before. Our society is much more interested in information than wonder, in noise rather than silence. And I feel that we need a lot more wonder and a lot more silence. Uh, project for Advent. Try it. Ponder anew what the Lord Almighty can do. Ponder anew. Get a devotional guide. There are billions. Do something. She ponders. And what does she ponder? What the shepherds came to tell her. And what do the shepherds do in that moment? They don't sit down. They, like, they go and tell Mary and Joseph, guess what we just heard? And Mary's like, what are you, I don't, what are you talking about? It says that they went and told everybody that they could tell. Anybody. Anybody that would listen. Now, they did not sit down at a picnic table with anybody they were telling about. And let's say, let's consider the first important question. Why is there something rather than nothing? This was not a, they did not take it upon themselves to kind of create this wonderfully rational construct for a persuasive case for the transcendent Lord coming in the form of a child. They just pointed. They just pointed to what they'd seen. That's all. They were not to prove anything. They were not to be persuasive. They just told. They just pointed. That's the, that, one effect of glory on you is that you will ponder it. And another effect is that you will point to that which you praise. And they did. It is the nature of having an encounter with glory that you are both willing and ready when the opportunity arises to act and speak of the hope that is within you with gentleness and respect. And you know what? I'm going to show you a picture of that. Again, from Ion Hersi Ali. She gives this interview, and then Freddie Sayer says, let's open it up for questions. And here's a moment where somebody asks a very honest question and listen to her very candid answer. Do you believe that we were created by the Abrahamic God? And if you do, um, have you always believed that's the case? And you've simply um, changed the flavor of that belief over time. <laughs> if you don't, is this more a sense of political pragmatism from you at the moment? I think that's a very good question. I think, uh, Freddie, you asked that earlier. Um, I think that. I have not, again, my atheist friends want to see evidence because you say, do you believe that God created? And then you say, well, have you got any evidence for God? So I want to sidestep that question by saying, I do believe it, that there are stories and I choose to believe the story that uh, there is a higher power. Um, again, 
it, what that means, I'm still developing, I'm still learning as much as I can, but I choose to believe in that story because the legacy of that story is what we are living through. So it, yes, it's partly pragmatic, and yes, it is partly personal and spiritual. And it's a story I like because it's a story that says human life is worth living because it's in the image of God. And instead of seeking God somewhere out there who's ordering you to do all sorts of things, God is something in you. That's much, much more appealing to me than um, the story of there's nothing there. You have no more value than mold. And that's atheism. And I think if you tell people they have no more value than mold, then you will, what's the point? Huh. Always be ready to have a defense of the hope that is in you, such that if anybody should ever ask questions of it, you're ready and you speak with gentleness and respect. Bingo. A little earlier in the interview, which is also in the resource doc, she's talking to an atheist friend, and her atheist friend is saying, Ayan, I'm baffled. What are you doing? And in that moment, it's kind of like, it's not Ayan going, infidel, I'm moving on. It's like, I love you. Here's where I am. And you hear in the story, in that account, she, like, I, I choose to believe that. She finds it appealing. And some people think, well, she just wants to believe that. That's the nature of her belief. Come on. Are, what things do you really believe that you don't want to believe are true? It doesn't prove anything, but it certainly speaks to something within us that might suggest that belief is actually legit. What is she doing? She's pointing, not wagging. I'm pointing to him who speaks to me in a way that if my atheist friends were intellectually honest enough to take their position to its logical conclusion, she's right. If we think we're better than mold, it's just because we want to. And so she says in that essay that you can read, I would not be truthful if I attributed my embrace of Christianity solely to the realization that atheism is too weak and divisive a doctrine to fortify against us our menacing foes. I have also turned to Christianity because I ultimately found life without any spiritual solace unendurable, indeed very nearly self-destructive. Atheism failed to answer a simple question. What is the meaning and purpose of life? The experience of glory, the effects of glory go there. So that's my challenge to us all during Advent. Ponder anew what the Lord Almighty has, can do. And then also, prepare a question or two. Should the Lord lead you to the path of somebody? It's not about well, what do you believe about the Bible? I mean, you can do that if you want. That's fine. How about, where do you find meaning and purpose? And see where the conversation goes there. And then maybe ask, what do you make of Jesus? And see where the conversation goes there. You're pointing. You're gesturing in his direction with gentleness and respect. Because that, my friends, is the effect of glory. And if at any point you feel like, I could never do that, you have to ask yourself why not out of guilt, but out of whatever thing you're most afraid of that you're enslaved to, that he is better than. These are the effects of glory. 
based upon the experience of the essence of that glory in Jesus, who has come to bring us from any number of things, physical, spiritual, existential, and anything else you want to think of. Let's pray. Father, uh, we want to see your glory. We want to believe that it's real. We want to know that we are held, even when everything else that used to hold us up uh, no longer carry the weight of our moment. We want to find you in the struggle. We want to know you in the darkness when all the other lights have gone out. We want to discover, as she has, by your grace, through the working of your spirit, and the love of a church that probably surrounded her in some way, and now continues to deepen and clarify for her what it means to walk in fullness. Father, would you help us to see you and to trust and to resist the accusations of one who can no longer make an accusation stick because your son has taken it all upon us, upon himself, rather. So we might be able to face you without fear, a fear of judgment. We praise you for your glory. We ask that you teach us more what it means to rest in it. In his name, amen.